The church is on the ropes. Now, it's not really on the ropes, mind you. All right? After all, Jesus said in Matthew 16 that he would build his church and the gates of Hades would not prevail against it. So don't get me wrong. The church isn't going anywhere. It will never truly die. There will always be a church. But in terms of popularity, in terms of regard, the public perception of the church, that is currently on the decline in our society. People are increasingly viewing the church as unnecessary, superfluous. This is primarily reflected in the form of declining church attendance. According to Gallup polls, weekly church attendance has declined about 20% in the past 15 years. Church membership has fallen at roughly the same clip. Now granted, much of this decline is due to the fact that there are simply fewer professing Christians than there were 15 years ago. Actually, about 44% of Americans described themselves as born again in 2001 compared to just 38% today. That's a decline of around 15%. And that decline is obviously going to be reflected in declining church attendance. But at the same time, at least part of this decline seems to be due to the fact that more and more Christians just don't see the church, or church life, or church attendance, or any of these things, as all that significant, as all that important. For example, according to a 2014 poll conducted by the Barna Research Group, just about half of all Americans, 49%, say that attending church is somewhat or very important. And when it comes to millennials, which includes those Americans born between 1984 and 2002, that number is just 20%. And while it's possible that that figure could shift upwards, this 20% figure could shift upwards as that generation ages, it's still telling of the shift that is taking place in America. More and more people do not think that church is important, that it matters, that it's significant. And according to a different Barna poll, if you were to ask these millennials, this rising generation, where only 20% think that it's important, if you were to ask them why they don't think church attendance is important, Almost 40% pointed to the fact that they could find God elsewhere. 35% said it wasn't relevant. And 30% said it was boring. In other words, what you're seeing in this decline in church attendance, if you're, when, you're, when you see this accompanied by this rise in indifference toward the church, and when you get down to why people think church attendance doesn't matter, one major reason is people think it didn't do anything for me. You know, church, it, it isn't relevant, it's boring, I couldn't find God there. Those are all just different ways of saying it didn't benefit me. That's part of what the data is telling us. And you don't need statistics from national polls to know this. It's not uncommon to come across this attitude yourself. You probably all have friends or coworkers who, if you ask them to come to church with you, respond by saying, you know, I just prefer to worship at home. My, my relationship with God, you know, that's very personal. That's something that's between me and Him. That seems to be a more and more prevalent attitude in our society. A person's faith is private. A person's faith is personal. It's something that just takes place between them and God. You'll see it expressed with statements like, you know, look, I love Jesus. I just don't like religion. And, then, and that reasoning is used to justify that person's lack of interest in the church. Of course, what, per, what such persons miss, however, is that the New Testament says things like this, James 1.27, Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, 
to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. And this, 1 John 4, 20-21, If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So it's impossible to say, I love Jesus, but I don't care for His church. Because true worship, according to the Scriptures, is not simply expressed internally with one's own thoughts and emotions, but externally in the form of love for Christ's church. After all, the church is the body of Christ. The church is made up of those people for whom Christ died. As the members of the church are sanctified, they even grow into the image of Christ. So how can one say they love Jesus and not love His church? It's simply impossible. Love for Jesus means love for the church. Unfortunately, the problem that we have with our culture is that we've so focused on the inward expression of our worship that we've really made that the end or goal of our worship. And that's not the goal. Right doctrine... Understand me here, right doctrine and the worship that results from right doctrine is to express itself in love. It would seem for many it doesn't go that far. Rather, the question that many of us have when we leave church is how did that make me feel? In short, we're selfish. The church as a whole is primarily concerned with themselves. And this explains really not just the decline in church attendance, but many other things happening in the church as well. For instance, I mean, the the spectator mindset that so many people bring to church, where the church service is a performance to be viewed rather than an expression of worship to participate in. That goes back to this idea of selfishness. The, The allergic reaction that so many believers have when the topic of giving comes up. This goes back to this idea of selfishness. Even the rise of satellite churches and so-called paper pastors, where some Christians have begun to substitute podcasts for regular attendance at a local church, this all comes from this looming consumer mindset which asks not, what can I do for the church? But rather, what can the church do for me? This all happens because we're selfish in our worship. And as we've seen as we studied Matthew 18 together, this is not what Jesus had in mind for His church. For him, church was not an activity to go to. It was a fellowship to belong to. It wasn't supposed to be an event to attend and spectate or observe. It was supposed to be a family. It was about relationships. Like for him, the purpose of the local local assembly wasn't just to show up and hear sermons. No, the local assembly was a community of people who actually worked together to help one another in their sanctification. Ministry wasn't something that professionals did. It was something that the church would do together as they were instructed in God's Word. Unfortunately, I think that's a pretty foreign concept for many Christians. And so right now we're taking a break from Matthew to continue to dwell on this concept that Jesus introduced there. The name of the series, once again, is Body Life, and the purpose of this series is to help you gain a right perspective on life in the church, as a whole, the church has really flipped everything upside down. We come to church as consumers, often asking, what are you all going to give me? We're selfish. And what we want to do in this series is kind of reverse the polarity 
in that kind of thinking. I want to flip the switch so that if any of you come with that mindset, perhaps even just unintentionally, that'll be corrected and Lord willing, you can enjoy the real blessings that can be experienced when you empty yourself in selfless love for the church. We're doing this in the form of four B commands. The first two were be new and be one. If you want to approach life in the body of Christ effectively, then you need to be new and be one. And of course, what we've seen up to this this point is that unity with the body of Christ is really indispensable. After all, when we believed in Christ, we were made ambassadors of the kingdom of heaven. That's part of what our new identity in Christ means. We were transferred out of the domain of darkness and placed into the kingdom of God's Son. And we were transferred not just to belong to that kingdom, but to proclaim it to the world. We are Christ's representatives here on the earth as part of our new identity. And this means that as we proclaim the gospel, we must do so in a way that reflects that it reflects the will and character of the King. And as we saw particularly last week in our discussion of oneness, the oneness of the church, this isn't something that we can pull off on our own. As Paul says in Titus 2:14, Jesus died in order to, quote, redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good works. He died so that being redeemed, we might serve Him in holiness. That's not something that we pull off on our own, though. Not only are we dependent on God to achieve that sanctification, but the means that God has established for that growth, for this holiness that we've been called to, is His church. You'll recall from the past couple of messages, what we saw is that we're all born with hardened hearts that suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. And while part of that darkness is removed, when we're cleansed by the renewal of the Holy Spirit, this is not to say that our ignorance immediately vanishes. We receive this new calling in Christ to serve and worship Him in holiness, but we don't know how to do that exactly. Even after coming to Christ... It's something we have to grow into. We've received the office of of ambassador of God, but we still have to study and learn and grow in order to know how to do that. And the way that we do that, as we've seen, is not just through a personal study of the Scripture, but by living in community with Christ's church. God has given varying gifts to the members of the church who are able to build us up in Christ through the exercise of those gifts. And even more than this, our brothers and sisters are often able to see sin in us that we often cannot see ourselves. And so they're able to lovingly address us in that sin. They can help us overcome the weaknesses that, that we can never overcome on our own. And what this all means, of course, is that life with the church is simply indispensable to our faith. After all, if you think about it, life with the church is central to our worship. Not only is love for Christ expressed primarily through a love for His church, but we will never even be able to mature in our love for Christ apart from fellowship with His church. In fact, to to borrow the imagery of Matthew 18, a lone sheep is a dead sheep, scripturally speaking. Fellowship with the church is central to our worship. And in being central to our worship, it's also central to our mission. I say this because it is as we worship Christ that we will proclaim Him. It is as we grow in our knowledge of Christ that we will proclaim Him clearly. And it's as we grow in the image of Christ 
that the world will be able to behold Him in us. It's like I've said before, the churches in our communities, these are foreign embassies. And the way that we live with one another in these communities, it's a preview of the kingdom of heaven to the world around us. The way that the world will know what life will be like under Christ's reign is demonstrated in part by the way that we live with one another. Or at least according to passages like Matthew 5, 14-16, that's the way it's supposed to be. Point is, the church and everything that life in the church entails, that is God's missions program. The church is God's missions program. This community is His plan for reaching the ends of the earth with the gospel. So that's what we've discussed so far. We are ambassadors of Christ, and the way that we will accomplish this mission is by growing in the knowledge of Christ while being united to one another. That's kind of the theological concepts that we've covered. Now, we've seen already in part how these two concepts should apply to life in the body. The reason why we hear the preaching of God's Word on Sunday morning, for example, goes back to these two concepts, back to this idea of newness and how this newness happens. And the reason why Christ and the apostles so often plead for humility and gentleness and patience in the church goes back to these two concepts, this importance for this idea of the importance of unity in the church. But what should we actually do then? If these two things are true, if we are both new and one, then what's the attitude that we should take towards these two concepts? How should we approach this? Those are the two questions that I want to address uh, between this week and next. What should we do as a result of these ideas? And then what is the attitude that we should do it with? I want to start with this week with the first question. What should we do? Up to this point, I've said that if you want to approach life in the body, then you must be new and be one. How should you respond to these two truths? Well, first, you get involved. That's the title for today's message, Be Involved. If you want to live, if you want to apply these concepts of be new and be one rightly, then you will be involved. So in what way should you be involved? Well, based on what we've discussed over the past couple of weeks and on what we've seen in passages scattered throughout the New Testament, I would summarize involvement in the church along these three lines. The first is this. Step one, learn. Learn. That's the first step to involvement in the body of Christ. You learn. Now, by this point in the series, it should already be evident that you can't really be an effective member of the body of Christ if you are not growing in your knowledge of the Scriptures. As we saw last week in Ephesians 4, the body builds itself up as the individual members of the church learn the Scriptures and then speak the truth to one another in love. That's how the body grows. That's how it's unified. It builds itself up as pastors, teachers, evangelists, etc., equip the church with the knowledge of God's Word, and then the individual members of the church then use that knowledge to speak the truth to one another as they exercise their unique gifts. And apart from this work, the church cannot attain, quote, the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Well, obviously that truth-speaking process can't happen apart from knowledge of God's Word. I mean, we've seen Jesus talk about this confrontation process that's supposed to happen in the church when a fellow believer stumbles and falls into sin. How are you supposed to know 
To do that, though, if you don't know what sin is, I mean, you can't do it, not effectively, right? If you're not learning. In fact, you can't even exercise the humility, the gentleness, the patience necessary for that truth-speaking process to happen if you're not learning. And I say this because that kind of maturity, the, the maturity to bear with your brothers and sisters in love, it can't happen unless you're constantly renewing your mind with the Scriptures. That kind of love isn't natural. Right? I mean, it's a product of a spirit-fueled sanctification, a sanctification which can only occur as you're refreshing your mind with the knowledge of God's Word. So you must learn in this sense. You must grow in your understanding of the Scriptures. Every single one of you is to be a theologian. And I think we've already seen the importance of this concept throughout the past two messages. The past two messages. So I'm not going to belabor this point now. But I would remind you once again that you must apply yourself to this work. You must work at growing in the knowledge of God's Word if you're to be involved in the body of Christ rightly. I know most of us probably don't think this way, but I would just emphasize this point by reminding you that the spiritual health and maturity of your brothers and sisters depends on that point, on you working to grow in the knowledge of God's Word. Again, I know most of us probably don't think this way. Most of us probably listen to messages, and when we walk away from messages that we hear, the only thing that we ever think is, was that helpful for me? And I would encourage you to move beyond this. Now, I'm not saying don't apply the Scriptures to yourself. Again, please apply the Scriptures to yourself, and do it to yourself first, no doubt. But don't only think this way. Listen, And as you listen, or as you read, or as you study, think to yourself, how might this truth be helpful for another believer I know? Or even, how might this be helpful in the future, like maybe five years from now, as I try to help a brother ensnared in sin? When you read, don't just read for yourself. Again, read for yourself first, because it's as you grow in righteousness that you'll be a benefit to the body of Christ, but also read to acquire knowledge that will be useful for other Christians. Like maybe pick up a counseling book from time to time. And deal, a counseling book that maybe deals with issues that you don't personally struggle with. But pick it up and read it so you might have a better grasp of how to handle that issue for someone else. Point is, understand that your effectiveness in the body of Christ, your helpfulness to your fellow brothers and sisters, your ability to help them grow in Christ's likeness will always, always be restricted by the extent of your knowledge of God's Word. You will never be more effective than what you know and have personally applied from the Scriptures. And the rest of the body, they're they're depending on you to study in that way for their spiritual growth. And vice versa. So stop thinking about yourself when it comes to learning. Take it seriously. Apply yourself to study the Scriptures and do it not just for yourself, but for the benefit of the entire church, for the benefit they will experience as a result. So again, learn, study. But don't just learn about the Scriptures. Not just the Scriptures. When I say learn, there's another concept I want you to get here too, which is that you learn not only the Scriptures, but you also learn about your fellow brothers and sisters. That's part of what it means to be involved in the body. You learn 
about your fellow brothers and sisters. And that's the aspect of learning that I really don't want you to lose sight of when I say that part of involvement means learning. Don't just study the Scriptures. Study the church. Like, learn about the people around you. And be just as intentional and diligent to do that as you would be to study some aspect of theology. If you would please turn to Acts 2, verses 42 to 47. Again, that's Acts 2, 42 to 47. If you're familiar with this passage, and you're probably aware of the fact that this passage is often pointed to as the example of what life should look like in the church. There's this tendency in the church where we want to know what the church should look like today. And, and we, we, we ask ourselves, well, what did it look like in the book of Acts? Personally, I don't know if this is always wise. After all, the church in the book of Acts is a church in its infancy, right? We should really expect the church to grow some, even after the book of Acts. And at the church in the book of Acts, and especially the Jerusalem church in the opening chapters of this book, it was a church under the direct rule of the apostles. That means something. And this is especially the case when we come across those instances where it would seem like the church's actions are presented as exemplary. And I think that's what we find in Acts 2, 42-47. In this passage, the church is officially launched, so to speak. Peter, who you'll recall, Jesus said would serve as the foundation for the church. He just preached the first recorded sermon after Jesus' ascension to heaven. It's Pentecost, and Peter has just proclaimed with great authority Jesus' resurrection from the dead. The people responded by Peter's preaching by saying, What shall we do? Peter tells them to repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and they do. And what appears to be the first example even of what we might consider formal church membership, there's some kind of count taken. Luke knows that there's 3,000 baptized that day. And just like that, the church is officially launched. Right after this, Luke states in Acts 2, 42-47, in what appears to be a summary statement for what life in the church was like in those early days of the church. He says this, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together, and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. That's what church, or life in the early church uh, looked like. That's what the Christians who devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching understood body life to be. And that's how they lived. And there are really a few different observations that we can make about this passage. For example, you see the church very clearly devoted to instruction. Right? So once again, learning is going on. They were studying the Scriptures. But look at what you see repeated three different times. Once in verse 42, then again in verse 44, and then again in verse 46. Luke says in verse 42 that they didn't just devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, but to koinonia, fellowship. 
And there's this explanation that follows, explaining what this koinonia was. They devoted themselves to koinonia, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. That breaking of bread, by the way, that's not just a celebration of the Lord's table or something like that, per se. Though, from places like 1 Corinthians 11, we could probably conclude that that was going on when this was happening. But these are meals. They were eating meals together. You can tell this from what Luke says in verse 46. Day by day, keep in mind, this this wasn't just one day a week or something like that. Day by day, he says they were attending the temple together. So like they were joining together in public and corporate uh, public and corporate expression of worship that's what it seems to be referring to there that's actually what this reference to the prayers back in verse 42 seems to be referring to as well they were attending the public prayers that occurred at the temple so they were doing that day by day and they were breaking bread in their homes and Luke says that they received their food with glad and generous hearts So this isn't the Lord's table that they're receiving, though again from 1 Corinthians 11 we can conclude that that's probably happening as well. But these are actual meals. And if you want to know why they were having meals together, I think you see two different answers in this passage. The first goes back to verse 42, where this breaking of bread describes how they were devoted to the koinonia, the fellowship. In other words, part of the reason why they did this, why they ate meals together, day by day even, Part of it was just to be together. Luke brings this out again when he says in verse 42, uh, I'm sorry, in verse 44, he says, and all who believed were together. Point is, they spent time together just to be together. That was one of the reasons for the meals. And you see the second reason, by the way, in verses 44 to 45, where Luke says, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is why Luke notes that they received their food with both glad and generous hearts. In verse 46, these are meals where those who have much are giving to those who have little. That's why they're taking the meal with generosity Those who have much are giving, and with gladness. Those who have little are receiving with thankfulness. So can you see what's going on here? They're spending time together, but they're not just spending time together, which of course is important. But they actually know about one another. In this passage, I think we're always drawn to the extreme generosity of what's going on here. And it is amazing. And we're going to come back to that generosity here in just a moment. But before you'd observe that, I'd have you observe that they actually knew what one another's needs were. And they were attending to those needs. They spent time together. And as they spent time together, they knew one another. And as they knew one another, they attended to one another's needs. This is key part of being a part of the body, means being aware of other people. It means knowing about their needs. It's pretty simple. You can't help your brother or sister in Christ if you don't know anything about them. You won't know what truth to speak to them, or you won't know how to serve them if you don't know anything about them. I mean, we're supposed to pursue our brother when he's in sin. Well, how are you going to ever be able to do that if all that you ever know about him is what's exchanged in the polite small talk that we have together after church? 
How are you going to know when he's hurt? Or when he's struggling with a particular sin? Or suppose that for some reason you do discover that he's ensnared in some kind of sin. And you want to go help him. 1 Thessalonians 5.14, you'll recall, says that you should admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak while being patient with all. That's part of what it means to restore your brother in gentleness. You take the state of his soul into consideration. You don't admonish a faint-hearted brother. That would only crush him. You don't encourage an unruly brother. That's going to encourage him in his sin. You have to know who you're dealing with. How are you going to do that If you don't know anything about your brother, how are you going to accomplish that? Can you see where I'm getting at here? You have to know your brothers or sisters if you're going to be able to speak the truth to one another in love. And really, very often, the only way that you'll get to really know a person, like really know them beyond the small talk, is just by being with them. And quite often, the only way that a brother is going to receive a word of correction with humility is when it's coming from someone that they know cares about them. And how are they going to know that you care about them? Well, partly, it's by just being with them. It's by taking an interest in them that goes beyond just coming to correct them when they've fallen. You spend time with them. You get to know them. You show that you're interested. And then when that word of correction comes, they're ready to listen. So spend time together. That's part of what this means if we're going to learn about our brothers and sisters. But don't just spend time together either. Get nosy. Remember, the kind of fellowship that we need in Christ is Christ-centered fellowship. It's a fellowship that's centered around a discussion of the Scriptures. Quite often in the church, you'll see Christians hang out together and they'll talk sports or TV shows and then they'll call that fellowship. And again, that's not all bad. After all, it's by talking about these things, sharing the things that we're interested in, that we get to really understand one another, know what's going on in each other's life. So there's nothing wrong with that. But still, if you don't know what's going on with your brother or sister's life spiritually, you don't really know about them. At least not in the way that you need to, not in the way that counts. So, as you spend time together, don't be afraid to shift the topic every now and then and say, brother, how can I pray for you? Can you tell me what you're wrestling with so I can share that burden with you? Be nosy. And by the way, if someone gets nosy and they ask you, assuming that's someone that you do know and trust, that's someone you have a relationship with in the church, tell them. Don't just stiff-arm them. Don't keep them at a distance. Don't just start listing off all the physical ailments you know, of your extended relatives when they ask you, how can I pray for you? No, tell them. And then turn it around and ask them, and how can I pray for you? This isn't something that we should resent. Sometimes we resent that. People ask questions and they go, well, what's their problem? Listen, a brother who does that, he's not, ask, he's, not, he's not being the sin police. He's not being a Pharisee. When he starts digging, he's being a brother. I remember back when I was a new Christian, there was this one time when I was chatting with a, an older friend of mine after church and During the course of the conversation, I revealed to him that that weekend I was going to go do this thing, which at the time, I didn't think was really that big of a deal. I was a new believer. Uh, I thought it was kind of normal stuff. This was stuff that I would do all the time before I came to Christ. There was nothing inherently sinful about this thing, but 
in the process, I was going to expose myself to temptation. And while at the time I thought it was pharisaical to take what was really just common sense steps to avoid temptation, I thought that was all pharisaical. If you take a common sense step to avoid temptation, I thought, oh, you're adding rules and regulations and all this. I thought that was wrong. This guy, he knew better. And so as I was sharing this all with him, he, he told me, he says, well, okay, but just as a heads up, I might give you a call on Saturday just to make sure that you're doing all right. And you know what? He did. Saturday rolled around, and I got a phone call. And he asked, he's like, so what's going on? And he just started asking how I was doing and started chatting. And at the time, I have to tell you, was I a little offended? Yeah. I thought to myself, who does this guy think I am? What kind of confidence does he have in me? And the answer was very little, and he had every right to think that way. (laughs) Yeah. And you know what? I still love that man dearly today because of it. It's like it says in Proverbs 28, 23, whoever rebukes a man will afterward find more favor than he who flatters with his tongue. That's the way it turned out with this, this guy. He wasn't afraid to risk me being offended by him. He cared about my spiritual well-being more than what I thought about him. And I have to tell you, I've had very few friends in my life who have ever loved me like that. So even though I was a little offended at the time, I still love him today for it. And I want you to understand, we weren't accountability partners or something like that. He didn't need some kind of official relationship to act this way. This was just a mature Christian after church paying attention to what was going on in the life of a new believer. Being intentional to watch out for what was going on in his spiritual life and caring about it enough to call and see what was going on. I would strongly encourage you to do the same. Don't wait for some kind of formal relationship to start up, to start something like that. Just start watching out for your brothers and sisters and do it by asking questions. Get to know them. And again, don't just know about them, but be known too. Let them find out about you. Bottom line, learn about the people that you're in fellowship with. That's the first step to being involved in body life. Learn. The second step is this, speak. Speak. Being involved in body life requires that you speak. So the body grows as the mind is renewed. And the mind is renewed as the body ministers the truth to one another in love. (coughs) Brothers and sisters are restored to the body, according to Matthew 18, when their fellow brothers and sisters see their sin or their error and address it. Quite clearly, then, this requires us all to speak. This is a significant reason for life in the church, to build one another up by speaking the truth to one another, whether it be in the form of theological truth or simply by addressing sin in a believer's life. Either way, it means we must speak. And I think we should note that there's no one way to speak. For example, you may think that when I say speak, I'm saying admonish. That's, I think, the concept that comes to mind when we start talking about addressing one another's sin. We think confront or admonish, like get in the other person's face and say, stop doing that. But when the Bible tells us about the type of speaking that we're to do in the church, it's much broader than that. 
That's why I'm trying to use this, this word address when it comes to sin or error. I say that we address a brother sin or error. I say that because not every form of speaking that we should do in relationship to sin is admonish. For example, as I was preparing for this series, I was reviewing the one another statements in Scripture to try to get a summary of the type of activities that the New Testament writers tell the church to do with one another. I mean, that's a pretty good place to begin, right? If you're talking about life in the body, what do the apostles say that we should do to or for one another? I then try to categorize all these one another statements along particular themes that they had in common so I could perhaps structure our series that way by focusing on the one another statements of the New Testament. And when you do that, one thing you notice is that a large chunk of the one another's have to do with the act of speaking. Here's some examples of of those passages, those verses, the types of speaking that we are to do to one another in the church. Paul says in Colossians 3.16, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. So we are both to teach and admonish one another. I said admonishment isn't exclusive to the type of speaking we are to do, but that is part of it. We are to teach and we are to admonish. In 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul explains the concept of the rapture, and after he finishes that, he says in verse 18, therefore encourage one another with these words. So there's this doctrinal truth that that the Thessalonians are to share with one another, this truth about the rapture, but it's not being done to admonish or correct. It's being spoken in order to encourage. Again, we are to admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, and help the weak. Along those lines, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, he says, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Uh, You'll remember from our previous passages that Paul writes to the Corinthians after this rift that's happened in the church concerning Paul's leadership. Paul tells the Corinthians to agree with one another. Again, they're to seek unity. And then after disagreements have been resolved, he says they're to comfort one another. This is similar to encourage. They're to speak soothing words that are aimed at covering the former break in the relationship. Also similar to the idea of encourage, the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 10, 24-25, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So again, we are to encourage one another. And part of what this means is stirring one another up to love and good works. In fact, as you can tell from that passage, this is actually why we shouldn't neglect the assembling of ourselves. We meet together so that we can give each other a spiritual boost, so to speak. We urge one another on to persevere in the faith and continue to grow in Christ. That's life in the body of Christ. James 5.16 says, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. If you know the context of that passage, James speaks of this kind of connection between, some kind of connection between sin and sickness for some members of the church. And so James says, confess your sins to one another. They're to tell one another about each other's sin. And why? Well, it's so that they might also pray for the one who is sick. So they're both to confess and pray for one another. And note this, sin shouldn't be 
just addressed by the admonishment of a brother in the life of a body. No, part of speaking means that I come to my brother on my own while in my sin. And I say, will you help me? And then we help one another. And in part, we do that by praying for one another. Obviously, if we're confessing our sins, those aren't always going to be sins against God alone. Sometimes those are going to be sin against each other as well. And in response to this, Paul says in Ephesians 4.32, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Obviously, forgiveness isn't just a matter of speaking. After all, Jesus demanded that we forgive one another from the heart, right? In Matthew 18. But it would still be expected that we'll speak words of forgiveness. That's part of comforting one another. We do that by telling the other person, after they've confessed their sin and repented, I forgive you. We express that forgiveness. We're told not to lie to one another in Colossians 3.9. So again, we are to speak the truth to one another. And that's not just doctrinal truth. Like Ephesians 4.15 says we are to speak the truth in love, but in context that's primarily referring to doctrinal theological truth. What we see in passages like Colossians 3.9 is that we don't just speak truth about God to one another. We speak truth about one another to one another. Again, I confess my sins. I speak the truth. And when you're in sin, I tell you. I don't lie to you and tell you that there's no problem. I speak the truth. When you ask me to make a commitment and I can't keep it, I don't lie and say, well, I'll do it, and then I don't do it. Make up some excuse later on. Try to keep from hurting your feelings. No, I tell you up front, I don't think I can do that. I speak the truth. On a few different occasions, the apostles... Uh, even tell the church to greet one another with a kiss. Just like forgiving, greeting isn't necessarily verbal. The point is that we have to accept one another, welcome one another. That's done with more than just words. But words are going to be a part of that. We verbalize our oneness by speaking of that oneness together, by greeting one another. We're told not to grumble against one another. In James 5.19, so we don't complain about each other to one another. We don't tear each other down in that way. Instead, we build one another up by being thankful. We speak edifying words to one another. So again, don't confuse what I'm saying when I say speak. I'm not just saying admonish. There's a broad, broad spectrum regarding the number of ways that we can minister to one another with our words. And the right way to do that all depends on the circumstances that your brother is in. Again, that's why I say the first step to being involved in the church is to learn. You need to listen first. You need to spend time investing in other people. You need to spend time getting to know them so that when you speak, you can speak to them in the right way, with the right truth. But then once you do that, so you're supposed to learn about one another, but once you do that, once you know who you're dealing with, what their struggles are, and what their attitude is toward those struggles, the the type of doctrine that applies to those struggles, all of that. The thing that I would just encourage you to do, though, once you learn in that respect, is to speak. Don't be a shrinking violet. Be bold. Stick your foot in your mouth every now and then. And don't get me wrong, I'm not saying be reckless. Please don't be reckless. All I'm saying is that don't let your fear that you might say something wrong become an excuse that you use to never actually speak the truth. 
You know, the Scripture commends those who are prudent with their words. It commends those who, are, who think before they speak. The man-fearers among us will use that to pass off our cowardice as righteousness. We'll say, I just can't be sure about what I think I need to say. Listen, if you've thought about it and you're pretty sure, you're mostly sure about what you should say, that's not rash speech. The Scripture condemns rash speaking. If you spent time thinking about what to say and how to say it first, and whether you even should say something, that's not rash. You can speak. And if you do end up being wrong, guess what? You can confess your error and seek forgiveness. The error in judgment, that's not irreconcilable. And if you spoke in love, that's going to be evident to your brother or sister, even if you're wrong. Right? They're going to understand that. Because you will have spoken in humility and gentleness. So if you speak in error, even still, it's not the end of the world. The two of you can be restored. In fact, you might find that your relationship will come out even stronger than it was before. Because again, you demonstrated love for that brother in coming after them. Speaking to them about their spiritual life. And they've expressed love to you and forgiving you for your error. That's going to form a deep bond between the two of you. Again, deep bonds are formed and we speak the truth to one another in love and we fight spiritual battles together. So don't be afraid. Speak. That's the second step to being involved. Speak. The third step, and I'll just point this out up front, sometimes it's the second as well. This third step, sometimes you do this instead of speaking. The third step to being involved is this. Serve. Serve. Being involved in the body of Christ means that you serve your brothers and sisters. If you happen to still be in Acts 2, 42-47, I want you to look again at what's going on in this passage. And if you're not there, go ahead and turn back there. Again, that's Acts 2, 42. So earlier we saw that the church was spending time together both in public worship and in private fellowship. We saw that they were learning about one another in that fellowship, and what did they do with that knowledge? Verses 44 to 45. And all who believed were together, and they had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. That's astonishing. These brothers and sisters were spending time together. They saw one another's need, And then they met those needs, and they did it with astounding generosity. In other words, they didn't just edify one another with words. They didn't just build one another up with theology and doctrine. Now, again, they did that, right? They devoted themselves to the teaching of the apostles. But that wasn't all they did. They didn't just grow in doctrine and then just said to one another, well, be warm and be filled, right? Or something like that. No, they built one another up with actions as well. Sometimes when you learn about your brother or sister and you're sitting there trying to figure out what does this person need to be built up in Christ, this is what you'll find. What they need isn't a word. It's an action. Listen, when there's a brother or sister mourning the loss of a family member or a close friend or when they're going through depression and you're wanting to see them restored to the comfort that's found in fellowship with Christ, Understand that they may, what they may need is not a scripture passage. What they may need is a friend. 
Many times all the scripture passages that you know to share with them, they know them all already. And they've been thinking about those passages constantly as they've been wrestling through their grief. They know those truths and they believe them. But that doesn't necessarily take away the pain. I mean, take the loss of a loved one, for instance. Even hope in the resurrection doesn't mean that we don't mourn, right? We mourn with hope, but we still mourn. Even Jesus, right, he wept at the tomb of Lazarus, didn't he? Sometimes the best thing you can do for someone who's going through some kind of hardship, you know, like that, like death or something like that, it's not to speak, but to act. It's to show them love, sometimes by simply being with them so that they don't have to go through the grief alone. The brother who's having trouble keeping the lights on, he doesn't necessarily need a lecture on the sovereignty of God. And I mean, yeah, an understanding of God's sovereignty is going to help him with that situation. And that may be helpful to remind him. I'm not saying don't speak truth. But at the same time, he may be aware of all of that, and he's clinging to that truth desperately. And he he believes it, he knows it, he wants to follow it. Do you know what might encourage that brother more than just saying, well, you know, remember this passage? You know what might encourage him more than that? And I mean really, really encourage him as he's fighting through that more than anything else? It may be you helping him to pay that bill. I mean, when he sees a brother putting his money where his mouth is and helping him out in a tough situation, when he sees the church selflessly loving one another, that can help him understand both the love and the sovereignty of God in ways that he couldn't imagine before. This is sometimes what people really need in order to be restored in their relationship with God. Not just words, but actions. They don't need to hear, God, uh, hear about God's mercy. They need to see it. They don't need to just hear about God's love. They need to experience it. And again, this is the beauty of the church. When we start actively loving each other, we become a visible manifestation of the love of Christ. We become a preview of the kingdom of heaven. And so it is imperative that we not only speak, but that we also serve. If we are truly one in the body of Christ, if we truly care about the spiritual well-being of our brothers and sisters, then we won't just love them with our words, but with our actions as well. As it says in 1 John 3.18, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. So how do we serve? And just like we saw with speak, there's not just one answer to this question. In terms of like service to the body generally, you know, how do you serve like the, just the general corporate body? One of the ways that you do this is you just get active and you start exercising your gifts. It's like we saw last week in Romans 12, 6 through 8. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. We all have different gifts. Meaning that we all are able to do some types of service better than others. And the way that we find out what those gifts are, it isn't necessarily by doing some type of spiritual gift inventory or something like that. We just get active. And we try to meet those needs that we can identify. And before long, you'll start seeing fruit in one area or another. And when you find out what that is, don't limit yourself to that kind of service per se, but invest in it. 
get good at it. I'm a teaching elder. Why is that? Well, it's because I've always liked to teach and others have affirmed that they think that's something I should do. So while I don't neglect the other types of service in the church, that you know, when I see a need, I've still invested in this type of service in particular. That's where it seems I can be of the greatest use to my brothers and sisters, by keeping my nose in a book. For others, Paul says, it may be contributing financially. Like they're wealthy Christians, that's what they're good at, making money that they can share with others. Personally, I can't do that. I'm not a businessman. Some Christians are. And if that's what a Christian is good at, it's not wrong for them to hone that skill so that they can give, as Paul says, with generosity. Now again, they shouldn't neglect other types of service as those opportunities come along, just as other Christians cannot neglect their duty to give financially to the church. But it's still okay for them to do that as well, to focus in on that. Others may be especially compassionate. They're very aware of other people's hardships. And they're not only aware of those hardships, but they're very good at knowing how to ease their pain. That kind of a person may want to direct their service to those who are hurting. If we're understanding the office of deacon rightly, for instance, such a person might want to consider serving in the church in that way if they were so called. That's what deacons are. They're ministers of mercy. So we could go on, but the idea is that if we're talking about serving the body as a whole... Then get, in, get active in the body, see what you're good at, and then perhaps start to invest at understanding that kind of service to do it well. Remember, the building up of the body is something that we all do together. It's a team effort. This means that we don't have to all excel at every single aspect of service. We should try to. I'm not saying we don't try. But we're not going to be able to be an expert in everything. That's not what's required to make the body grow. The body will grow when each part is doing its part and doing it well, Ephesians 4. So really learn your role and excel in it to the best of your ability. That's one way to look at service in the body, if we're looking at it from the broader corporate level. Now, when it comes down to that one individual brother or sister that you're trying to serve, how do you serve them? Once again, it all goes back to their needs. In Acts 2, the need was financial. There were poor brothers who didn't have food to eat. And so those who had more demonstrated Christ's love by sharing with them and giving to them financially. But it may not be that. What a person may need is a sympathetic ear, a friend who can show them compassion and comfort. Maybe it is theological. Once you get to know that brother and you say, what's their need? Maybe it is theological. Maybe it is speaking that they need and not action per se. Again, this is why it's so, so important that you learn about your brothers. And not just individually, but even as a group too. It's important that you get to know the body. And I say this because as you spend time with your brothers and sisters, one of the things that you'll discover, you'll not only discover what their needs are, so that you'll know how to minister to them, but you'll also discover that you may not know how to help them. Not yourself. You may find out that you're not equipped to handle the problem that they're facing. But if you know not just that individual brother, but the rest of the body as well, you may know who you can connect them with who can help them. 
For example, you may come across a brother or sister who's struggling in their parenting. They just don't know how to handle some disciplinary issue with their kids. You get to know them and that's something that's going on in their life and you want to speak to it, but you don't know how. Maybe you don't have kids. Or maybe you never faced that problem with your kids and you don't really know how to address that issue. But if you know the rest of the body well, while you may not know how to address that issue, you may know someone who has faced that issue and answered it. Then you can tell that brother, you know, you really need to talk to so-and-so because I remember they went through this once and they can, they can help you through this. You see how this works? Together, we are able to help one another grow in Christ's likeness. But what it means, bottom line, bottom line, at the end of the day, what this means, what it's going to require is that we have to abandon this mindset to the body which only says, what can I get out of this? We have to flip that focus. You've probably heard John, the John F. Kennedy quote where he once said, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country. This must be the attitude that all of us bring to the church. You stop asking, what can the church do for me? And you start asking, what can I do for my church? This attitude is sorely lacking in the church today. This is one reason, again, why church attendance is down. People ask, what will I gain from being at a church? And they think the answer is nothing. So they don't go. It doesn't benefit me. Why would I go? Well, because it benefits other people. That's the wrong question. You know, the question shouldn't be, what do I gain from it? The question should be, what will others gain from my being at church? That's probably a humbling question for many of us, by the way. If we stop to think about that, I'll shine a light on how well we're serving others. This attitude is also one of the reasons why we see uh, uh, why giving is declining in rising generations. Again, people ask, what do I gain by giving? And because much of the time they think the answer is nothing, they don't do it. They don't stop to think, how does my giving benefit others? It's why there is, again, this overall spectator mentality that people take to the church service. The questions that so many people want to know is, what they ask is, well, did that music edify me? Did the pastor's message speak to my problems today? Were the people at church friendly to me? That's because the focus is all on us, not on the people around us. We're thinking, what can I get out of all this, not what can I give? What can I put into it? And listen, if the church is going to truly build itself up in love, we've got to flip the switch on that thinking. The question has got to be turned around. We have to start asking, what's going on with the people around me? That has to be our concern. What's going on with the people around me? And how can I help them? So when you go home today, ask yourself this question, what can I do to be involved with my church. And I don't mean just cornerstone, please. I'm not talking about just organizational here. I mean the people. What can I do to be involved in this way? And then review this list. Examine where you fall short. And start to plan what changes you can make to build up your brothers and sisters. Tonight at 6, we'll continue to discuss how to apply these concepts together. I, I would invite you all to be a part of that discussion. In the meantime, let's close with prayer.